Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Um, It is so great to be with you for so many reasons. I feel like we're family. I know a lot of you, some of you um, I don't know from Adam, but... I love and respect Darren and Alex and your leadership team so much, and I love what um, is stirring here at your church, and my team was actually just down for the Empowered Conference. A number of our pastors and myself were here just a few weeks ago, and so it's great to be back. Uh, I was sitting where you're sitting, and now you're stuck with me up here instead of Alan, but it really is a joy to be with you, and I don't say that lightly. I um, really love you and really love what God is stirring up in you, and It's been fun to watch your journey, you know, and you started out as this kind of scrappy church plant with a good-looking ADD pastor, and and now you're like really growing and maturing in the way of Jesus, and it's just so fun to see you on that journey and my own church back home on that journey. So it's really happy, really great to be with you. Uh, Please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, there's a table of contents at the front part of it. And Mark is one of four first century biographies of Jesus of Nazareth. And we think it's the earliest of all four. And it's by far just the most to the point. And to start off, let's talk for a little bit about Jesus. Jesus was a lot of things. Most of us know Jesus as the Son of God or as the Messiah, or another word for that is the Christ. That's a word meaning the long-awaited king of Israel and of the world. But if you were a first-century Jew and you're at synagogue one Saturday morning on the Sabbath and Jesus were to show up in your village from out of town, the odds are that the category you would have put Jesus in was that of a rabbi. Now, rabbi is a Hebrew word, not an English word, and all it means is a teacher. A rabbi was a teacher that would travel around from village to village or city to city with his yoke. That was a first century euphemism for a set of teachings, for a way of reading the Torah or the Bible of his day. And Jesus was this young, brilliant rabbi. Of the 90 or so times that people talked to Jesus in the four gospels, upward of 60 of those, he's called rabbi or teacher. But tragically, this very simple idea that Jesus is a rabbi or a teacher has been, for the most part, lost in the church in the West for all sorts of reasons we don't have time to get into. It has to do with the Protestant Reformation and the divide between Protestant and Catholic. It has even more to do with the American story and the rift between liberal and conservative. There's all sorts of reasons for it. But it's an idea that we need to get back to, and here's why. Darren, your microphone is officially the worst microphone ever. I We're getting you. a new one, dude. Yeah, but I hate those because then I have to be all like... Do you want a Pentecostal with one of those? I'm just not me. This is like TED Talk intellectual. That's oh, like sexy Pentecostal, you know? Hold I'm on. Just, I'm going to get you a lapel. Give me... Give me that. Give me give that. Me. You have to be like, what's up? Da, da, da. I just can't do it. It's just, I, you should try. It's just not me. Should, I've never been pull, cool. Pull the shirt down a little bit more. I read books. No, I know. I We're going to get you a lapel. Yeah, would you bring that no, up? I just, well, I, no, it sounds good. nice. It's just... It, no. It's so I, bad, I seriously. I, I don't use I'm it like, I'm going to be in therapy there after this morning. Thanks, bro. That's okay, man. Here, let, let, let me fix this for you. That's what I love about your church, you know? It's just so mega church professional. <laughs> you know those churches where you, like, test the microphone before you talk in front of hundreds of people? This is not one of those churches. 
How's that? Do you want like tea or anything? Can I get you? Do you want some like only vegan, if, only vegan if donut? Only if it's herbal. Where were you? Like something about yolk. Go ahead. Something about yolk. Ah, <laughs> oh, I feel so much better. There we go. Much better. My point is this idea of Jesus as a teacher is something that we need to get back to. And here's why. It has the potential to radically reframe how you think about what it means to follow Jesus. Now, this is language that if you are around the church at all, you're very used to. Um, I'm a follower of Jesus, or are you a follower of Jesus? To the point that it's become a bit of a cliche. But I'm not actually sure that we know what it means to, quote, follow Jesus. So let's just read a story or two or three about Jesus of Nazareth and what it means to follow him. Take a look at Mark chapter 1, verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee right there in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Turn the page, chapter 2, look down at verse 13. Here's another story. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. He's a rabbi, he's a teacher. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. What did he say? Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the Torah, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Another one, chapter 3, look down at verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, remember that for later, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, and then after that there's a list. One more story, turn to chapter 8, and look down at verse 34. This is a story that is in all four Gospels. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and what? Follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And he goes on. Did you see a pattern in there? In story after story, the invitation of Jesus was not, hey, um, believe in me and you know, go to heaven when you die or something like that, which is often what it sounds like in the American or the Western church. Instead, the invitation of Jesus was come and what? Follow me. Or put another way, come and be my disciple. Now, the word disciple is mathetes in Greek. Can you say that? 
mathetes, and it can be translated disciple. The word um, can be translated follower or student is another way to translate it. A number of scholars argue that by far the best word that we have in the English language to capture the idea behind mathetes is apprentice. And that's because a mathetes was far more than a follower, especially how we think of it, like, I follow you on Twitter, Jesus, or something. It's actually not on Twitter yet, but he'll get there. He's a little behind the times on technology. Um, or, or student, you know, I, I, have, I take a class at USC or whatever the university around here is, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And disciple is this kind of Christian word, right? We don't have that word outside of the church. And so we import a lot of meanings, some of them right, some of them not right, into that. So honestly, I think the best word we have in the English language to capture mathetes is this idea of apprentice. Because to follow a rabbi was to apprentice under a rabbi. Now, a little bit of backstory. Discipleship, or if you prefer apprenticeship, wasn't invented by Jesus. Let me just say that again for some of you that grew up in the church. This is not Jesus' idea. Uh, The idea of a rabbi with a number of disciples did not start with Jesus of Nazareth. He was not the first rabbi to have disciples, nor was he the last. Rabbi Hillel, a few years before Jesus, had 70 disciples, even more than Jesus. Rabbi Akiva, another well-known rabbi after Jesus, a few decades later, had five, but thousands were said to, quote, follow Rabbi Akiva up and down Galilee. In fact, discipleship didn't even start in Israel. It's not even a Hebrew thing. It actually started in Greece. Some of you know this, depending on what your major was. Plato was a disciple or a mathetes. It's a Greek word. Was a mathetes of Socrates. And then later it spread all over the Mediterranean, through the Roman Empire, all the way to Israel. All that to say, discipleship or apprenticeship was part of the warp and the woof of the first century world. But sadly, when we talk about discipleship in the church today, often it's torn out of its kind of first century context, out of its Jewish context, and it's made into something else. So just give me a minute or two to nerd out on you and frame up for you apprenticeship in the first century. And if watching the History Channel is not your thing, or you know, binge watching YouTube, whatever, then just hang on, it won't take very long, and I am going somewhere with this, I promise, all right? In the first century, discipleship was the apex of the Jewish educational system. There were three levels to Jewish education. The first was called Beit Sefer. It's a Hebrew phrase meaning house of the book. And it was essentially, you know, the ancient equivalent of a grade school. You would learn to read. You'd learn to write. You would learn basic arithmetic. And the main thing, actually, was you would memorize most, if not all, of the Torah. So if you have your Bible in front of you, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. So that's Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy memorized, right? By the age of about 11 or 12. Now, the vast majority, that's an oral culture, just tell yourself that to make yourself feel a little bit better, all right? Now, the vast majority of children were done right after that, around age 12. My son Jude is down here in the front row. So at his age, he would be done with school. And before you get excited about that, then you, if you were female, you would usually get married within a year or two and start to bear children by 13 or 14. And if you were male, before you got married for about a year or two, you would apprentice to your father in the family business. So school is lousy, but you know, email or whatever I do for a living isn't that much better, right? (laughs) Now, the best of the best moved on to a second level of education called Beit Talmud, or the House of Learning. This was a school that, if uh, a community had the money, was built off of the synagogue. It was for men only, not for women. It was for ages 12 to 14 or so. 
and you would learn from a full-time teacher, usually a scribe or some kind of an expert in the Torah. And essentially, the main thing for those three years of your life is you would memorize all of what we call the Old Testament or the Bible of the day. So by the end, Genesis, just think about that, Genesis to Malachi memorized by age 14 or 15. Now, again, at that point, almost everybody was done. You would go on, maybe you'd become a scribe or something, or you would go back to the family best business. But the best of the best of the best, the summa laude, the Rhodes Scholarship, the whatever, the upper echelon, everybody from you know Manhattan, would become a mathetes, or a disciple, or an apprentice of a rabbi. Now, this, though, was really hard to get into. First, you had to go and sit for an interview with the rabbi, and he would just grill you. Like, think of the admissions process for a university and then multiply by 10, right? He would just grill you. How well do you know the Torah? Talk to me about your Hebrew. How well do you know the Mishnah? What's your thought on, you know, Hillel's take on the Nephilim from chapter 6? Like, he would just grill you. And if he thought that you had the smarts, the acumen, the work ethic, the raw talent to someday become a rabbi yourself, then at some point he would turn to you and he would say something like, all right, kid, come and follow me. Or come and become my mathetes, my disciple, my apprentice. Now, let's say in this hypothetical scenario, you are the best of the best of the best, you make it through the interview process, you get to the end, come, follow me. If that were to happen, you had three goals. First off, your goal was to be with your rabbi. Think of that line that we read in chapter 3, that they might be with him, end quote. That's the first thing, the first goal. Apprenticeship was 24-7. It was not like a class Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It was not a monthly event or a Sunday two-hour thing. It was 24-7. You would literally, to follow your rabbi was not a metaphor at first. It was literal. You would follow your rabbi from village to village, spend every waking moment with him. You would sleep at his side, eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner at his side, study with him on the road from town to town all day long. In fact, there was a well-known Hebrew blessing in the first century, and it was this, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And that's because there were no paved roads, everything was dirt, and the classroom was not a room at all, it was the road. The rabbi would teach from, uh, he would walk from village to village, because most rabbis were itinerant, and he would walk, and in between you know, each village, he would walk at a nice slow pace, and he would have, you know, 5, 10, 12, however many disciples or apprentices around him. And he would stand in the front and he would teach. And you would walk behind him. And by the end of the day, on the road or on the way with your rabbi, if you were lucky, you were covered in the dust of your rabbi. So that's your first goal. Secondly, your goal was to become like your rabbi. Jesus has this great line about discipleship or apprenticeship in the Gospel of Luke where he says, quote, the apprentice is not above the rabbi, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their rabbi. And that was the heart and soul of apprenticeship. It's a bit tricky for you and I to wrap our head around because we are in what most sociologists argue is the most hyper-individualistic society in human history. So our society is all about like, be yourself and like, do something that nobody does. Wear raw denim and get a tattoo and a beanie and like, you know, like nobody does that at all. Like, you know, and then you're everybody. But that's a whole other teaching, right? But in Jesus' day, 
in some ways it was a very similar culture, in other ways it was a very different culture. And in this way it was very different. It was not about be true to yourself or you're a snowflake or whatever. It, it was, if you were an apprentice, your goal was to become your rabbi. You would literally copy everything about him. You would copy his dress, you would copy his tone of voice, his intonation, his theology, his mode, his method, his philosophy, like you wanted to be him. And then finally, your goal was to do what he did. All right, that was the whole end goal. Did you see that line um, in chapter three again about how Jesus' end goal was to quote, send them out to preach and to drive out demons. That's exactly what Jesus had been doing, preaching and driving out demons. So the whole point of apprenticeship was for you one day to become a rabbi yourself and to do what your rabbi did, to take what he started and then to move it forward. And when he thought you were ready, at the end of your apprenticeship, a year, two, three years, however long later, he would say, he would turn to you and he'd say something like, all right, kid, I think you have what it takes. Go and make disciples. Now, I know all of you are smart people. You're already there to connect the dots. But let's flip this around from the first century to the 21st, from Galilee to Long Beach or wherever you call home. To follow, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a mathetes or a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus? Well, put simply, it means that you and I order, or for most of us, reorder, our life around the exact same three goals. A word on each. First off, to be with Jesus. This is our, this is not a formula, be with Jesus, become, but there is a flow to it. And I would argue that the first and most important goal in all of our apprenticeship to Jesus is just to be with him to spend every waking moment at his side, to sleep next to him and eat next to him and exercise next to him and even do email, the hell that it is, next to, some, yeah, I have a little bit of a bias, I'm sorry, but to be with Jesus. Now, of course, how does this work now? Because now follow Jesus is a bit of a metaphor. Like he's not here, at least not in the flesh. Even theologically, he's not here. He's actually at the right hand of the Father. Like that's not a secret. That's in the New Testament. So how do you and I follow Jesus around and be with Jesus all day long? Well, the answer is very simple. I don't have time to take you to the Gospel of John, and this is all in the teachings of Jesus, John 14, 15, 16. But basically, it's through relationship to the Spirit of Jesus. This means that the first and primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit all day long. You know, um, this is a charismatic church, for lack of a better word, and so is the one that I am a part of back home. And we've been on the journey, as you have, with the things of the Holy Spirit. But what often is easy to forget, especially when you're at a Sunday gathering, is that life in the Holy Spirit is not just about breakthrough moments, it's also about process moments. Meaning it's not just about, oh yeah, that one time at the Empowered Conference, there was a prophetic word over my life, and I started to weep, and I fell on the floor. And it's that. But how often does that happen to you? This is the garden, every Sunday, right? But whatever, you know. If Darren is up here preaching twice on Sunday, you know. But for most of us, the reason we love to tell those stories is because they are rare, not because they are common. Process moments are when you wake up tomorrow morning and before you turn on your phone and before you check your email and before you read the news and say, what did he do this time? Like first... <laughs> Sorry, I can say that I'm not a pastor here, right? <laughs> I can finally let out. Uh, anyway, um, 
It's the prophetic edge, you know? Anyway, sorry, back to this. Back to Jesus. Jesus, before you do all of that, you take a moment, or more than a moment, you open the scriptures and you read a psalm or a story from the life of Jesus and you pray and you open your mind and all of your body up to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you have an encounter with God. Other times you just can't get your mind to settle down and focus. You're just like rabbit all over. But the point is you're there, right? My point is most of our relationship with the Holy Spirit is actually in process moments, not in breakthrough moments. Most of it is when you're driving in the car and you just turn off NPR for... Do you have NPR down here? Yeah. In Portland, it's like a religion, right? So, um, and you just turn off the radio or whatever your thing is, Snoop Dogg, whatever, whatever it is. This is Long Beach, right? We wanted to listen on the way out. We were, Jude and I were driving up. We were like, oh, we should put on Cold War Kids. And then I'm like, oh, we really want to go Long Beach, put on some Snoop Dogg. But I'm like, it's maybe not the best thing to prep my heart to preach the gospel of Jesus. So we'll do it after church, all right? <laughs> on the way, now I have my 12-year-old. Cold War Kids, that's, that's G-rated, all right? Yeah. Sublime. Mm, is that from Long Beach? I didn't know. We digress. We're just we're all all about that today. My here's my point. My point is, these are the moments that we have with the Holy Spirit. Like this is the baseline for what it means to follow Jesus. If, if you're new to Jesus and you're kind of thinking like, where there's so much here and where do I even start? This is where you start. Like you start right here. Jesus put it this way in John 15, um, one of his most famous, famous teachings. Do we have that up on the slide? Yeah. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Remain in me. In Greek, it's this word meno. It can be translated remain, or in the older translations, it's abide, or it means to live. I mean, literally, it has to do with like your address, where you call home, in me, as I also call you home, live in you, remain in you, abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my methetes, my disciples, my apprentices. So notice that Jesus' metaphor for how you and I be with him, or more specifically with the Holy Spirit, is that of a branch in the vine. It's this idea of abiding. Dallas Willard says this. This is my all-time favorite Dallas Willard quote. I literally have it on the inside of my closet, and I read it on a regular basis before I go to work. It's a bit dense, so I'll read it slow. Just take a moment. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. Because how many of you direct your mind to Jesus and three seconds later it's like, you know, squirrel, right? <laughs> redirect our minds constantly, not just on Sunday or for 10 minutes every morning or an hour every morning, constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. He's very kind. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. 
a new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon, our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. And he just makes the point, and he's riffing on language from an ancient little writing by Brother Lawrence, that to live this way takes practice. It's the practice of the presence of God, to live in awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit all day long. That just won't happen, especially if you have an iPhone and you live in a city or you're raising a family or you have a demanding job or you have Wi-Fi. Like, it won't just happen. It takes a life of practice. This is what the practices of Jesus, or what most people call the spiritual disciplines, are all for. Whatever your list is, silence, solitude, prayer, fasting, scripture, the Sabbath, worship at church on Sunday, living in community, these are time-tested ways to abide in the vine, to just present yourself before God. When you wake up in the morning, all through your day, on the weekend, just to present yourself before God, to set your mind onto God and just say, God, your mind is like the portal to your entire being. And just say, God, here I am. I'm here. I haven't been here. I've been on email. I've been watching TV, Stranger Things season two. I've been a whole bunch of other places. But now I'm actually here. And you're here too. And you open up your mind and you open up your body to the things of the Holy Spirit. The spiritual disciplines, I think, are the great ache for our generation. I think we have no idea the staggering impact of the digital age, in particular the smartphone and Wi-Fi and urbanization, all that it has done to the human soul. And I think a far greater threat to our life with Jesus than the secularism or the post-Christian moment or... Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or whatever angry atheist there is, like a far greater threat is Instagram and your inbox and Safari. I think a far greater threat is the alert, the phantom, you know, alert when your phone's not even in your pocket and you still feel it right there, which is a thing, by the way. And so I think the need of the hour more than ever is to put our phone away, to log off, to say no, to slow down, and to start to practice the way of Jesus, meaning start to actually practice the spiritual disciplines, which are for millennia how you follow Jesus. How do you follow Jesus? Well, the spiritual disciplines, the practices of Jesus. That's how you follow Jesus. And one of the reasons that they so little is said about the spiritual disciplines, one of the reasons just because it's so countercultural right now, people don't want to hear about it, because there's digital addiction all over the place and busyness and hurry and anger and anxiety and materialism and all of that. But another one of the reasons is because people miss the why behind the spiritual disciplines and misread the disciplines as some kind of legalistic guilt trip or way of earning God's favor. It's just some nonsense. The spiritual disciplines are all a means to an end. The end is never, I read my Bible this morning. Great, who cares? I prayed, well, good for you, you know? <laughs> I'm at church. Well, well done. We're fantastic. You're here and not at brunch. But the, the point, they're not an end. They're a means to an end. What's the end? To be with Jesus. And out of that place of abiding in God, out of that place of connection to awareness of the Holy Spirit, then you start to become like Jesus. 
And that's the second goal. First one, be with Jesus. You just organize your life around the disciplines or the practices. You just set your mind, set even your body before God. And it's an embodied thing. Here, here I am. I'm here again. I've been gone for the last few hours. My mind's been all over the place. My body's been all over the place. Here I am again. So be with Jesus. And then secondly, to become like Jesus. Um, that is really your next goal, is to become like your rabbi, which in our case is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, back in the day, this was called sanctification. And now the kind of insider lingo for this is spiritual formation. There's a number of reasons for that change in language. One is just with the rise of the field of psychology over the last century and behavioral science now and all of learning theory. All of that has been over-the-top helpful in kind of learning or relearning. And the, the early church was much more attuned to this than the modern church. But learning and relearning how it is that we actually change and grow and mature to become more like Jesus. Here's a definition of spiritual formation. Quote, spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process, not an event, not a one-time thing. It's a process of increasingly, a little bit more each day, being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. And the thing that you need to grasp around spiritual formation is that spiritual formation is not a Christian thing, it's a human thing. What I mean by that is to be human is to be dynamic, not to be static. You, static. you are being formed into somebody or something. In the language of you know, the Gospels, you are a disciple of somebody or something. So the question is not, are you being formed? Trust me, you're being formed. The question is not, are you a disciple? You are a disciple. The question is, who or what are you being formed into? Who or what are you a disciple of? Is it of Jesus of Nazareth? Or is it of this subculture or that economic theory or that political identity or that what? Who, you are being formed into somebody or something. You're be, you are a disciple. The question is, who or what are you a disciple of else? And I don't know about you, but I want... I want to apprentice, I want a disciple under Jesus of Nazareth. I want to grow and mature to become more like Jesus. I, I'm guessing that you're here this morning because at some level you find Jesus of Nazareth compelling. Either that or you find a, a single boy or girl to your right or left compelling. Either way, we're really happy that you're here, wherever you're at in the journey, right? But most of you are here because at some level, even if you don't even believe in Jesus yet, you find Jesus compelling. That's not odd. That's logical. He is so compelling. And read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what has come to be called the Sermon on the Mount, which wasn't called that in his day. It was just called, there's Jesus on the mountain, and he's teaching, and it's awesome, right? And, and it's the most important collection of all Jesus' teachings in one place. And I don't know about you, but I read this vision of a whole new way to be human in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I think there's a deep like ache in the marrow of my bones. Yes, I want that. I want to live that way. And not just by my behavior, I want to become that kind of person from the inside out. And, and, and that's what the Spirit of God, that desire is what the Spirit of God is stirring up inside you and inside me. And it's what the writers of the New Testament call transformation. It's this word in Greek, it's metamorpho, where we get this word metamorphosis. It means a full, think of a caterpillar to a butterfly. It's that level of transformation. Radical overhaul from the inside out of your entire person where you're kind of who you were when you started, but not really. You're this whole other thing. All of this latent potential that was deep 
deep in you when you were the caterpillar, when you were pre-Jesus. It's all there, but it's unleashed through this process of transformation. That is God's heart for you. But of course, transformation is possible. Very few people actually believe that, often especially people that grew up in the church, that settle for the status quo of just a little bit of behavior modification rather than transformation. And behavior modification is not a bad thing. People like make fun of it as if it's moralism or whatever. I don't know. My behavior could use a little modification. I'm guessing yours could too. But man, I want so much more than behavior modification. I don't want just a new set of behaviors. I want a new heart. I want a new mind. I want a new marriage. I want a new sexuality. I want a new relationship to money and food and my fun. I want, I want to be transformed from the inside out. Why? Because I have the Holy Spirit like you do. And that's, what the, whole, that's, that's the wind behind my back. That's the direction that the wind of the Holy Spirit is blowing you. He's called the Holy Spirit. He's blowing you toward holiness is another word for it. Wholeness. Christ-likeness, to become like Christ. That is where the wind of the Holy Spirit is moving you and moving me. Third goal. So first, be with Jesus. Second, become like Jesus. Third, do what he did. Now this is, of course, basic math, right? If you're an apprentice of any kind of a master teacher, your whole goal is at some point to carry on your teacher's work, right? So I have, um, I was chatting with an apprentice at our church just recently. He's a like, volunteer sound guy. And he's an apprentice. He's in a four-year apprenticeship to become a plumber, moved to Portland to become a plumber. Who, who would have thought, right? And, uh, and I just interested. If you think about if you're an apprentice to a plumber. Anybody here an apprentice to an electrician or a carpenter? Anything? Barber. Barber. Fantastic. So what's your goal at the end of your, how long is your apprenticeship? Well, I was just doing it, and then he kicked me out of the shop. Oh. It turned out to be a kind of a jerk. Oh, he's kind of a jerk. Yeah. Okay, well, we can do prayer after. Uh, yeah. How's that? <laughs> How long was it supposed to be? Got it. Got it. Got it. Fantastic. Cool. So whether you're an apprentice to a barber or a plumber or an electrician or a carpenter or a rabbi, your whole goal is at the end, if if you're an apprentice to a plumber, at the end of your four-year process or program, the whole goal is that you know how to plumb a house and you actually go out and become a plumber and you get paid money to go plumb. Is plumb a verb? It is now, right? (laughs) Whatever. That makes basic math. Your goal is not to, like, write a book about plumbing or know, like, all about plumbing, but, like, you've never done it before. Your whole goal, if you apprentice under a plumber, is to one day become a plumber yourself, right? Basic math. This is what it means to be an apprentice. How many of us think that way about Jesus of Nazareth? Now, this is a church where that idea is, is here, and Darren's done a great job teaching you that. And so it's not a brand new idea for most of you. But Jesus is a rabbi. You're an apprentice to him. Your goal is over time, not like the next day, um, but over time to slowly but surely start to become the kind of person who is so rooted in the practice of the presence of God, so transformed from the inside out, not just by behavior, but by heart posture from the inside out, that you naturally start to do the kinds of things that Jesus was on about. So here's a short list of the kind of stuff that Jesus was into. Preaching the gospel, teaching the way or a whole new way to be human or often a whole new way to read the Bible, healing the sick, casting out demons, eating and drinking with people far from God. Like it's just, Jesus was always up for a free meal with somebody who wasn't a believer in him. Like he spent a lot of time around a table doing justice, peacemaking, 
praying, prophesying, standing up against religious as well as political corruption, right? And that's just my short list of kind of the main 10 categories of Jesus' kingdom work. If you are an apprentice of Jesus, think about it, your goal is to be able to do all of that. Now, not like the next morning after you wake up, like you follow Jesus for one day and the next day you're ready to, you know, raise the dead or whatever, But this is your end goal, is to grow and to mature into the kind of person who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, because that's how Jesus did all the miraculous stuff, was empowered by the Holy Spirit. You have the exact, you're not Jesus, but you are a follower of Jesus, and you have the exact same Holy Spirit in you. You have the authority and the power from Jesus himself vested in you. So your goal is to become this kind of a man or woman. It's not just to know about the Bible and theology. Think, think about how different this is from how a lot of us think about discipleship. I grew, up in a, I grew up in the church, and when I heard the word discipleship, what it meant was you meet for coffee every Thursday morning with Bob, who's 20 years older than you, and you do a really deep Bible study. And that's great. Bob was quite helpful. And it was great to get to know more of the Bible. I'm a Bible teacher. I love the Bible. It's not to mock that at all. But do you see what discipleship actually is? It's quite a bit more than that. It's a whole life. It's actually about not just what you know in your head. It's about who you become. And it's not just about who you become. It's about what you do with your life. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? This, a life that is built around three goals. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. And do what he did. And it's really clear when you start to put your head around that, that following Jesus like, just doesn't work as a hobby. Right? It's not like a side project. It's not like, well, the main point of my life is my career or my family or raising three children or, you know, I'm a filmmaker or a filmer <laughs> or whatever it is. <laughs> that was a great moment. Um, what, like, and I have this Jesus thing kind of on the side. No, following Jesus, it's, it is the main point of life. It's the whole thing. That doesn't mean you need to quit your job and you know, join a monastery. Even Jesus did not do that. Right? It doesn't mean you need to become a pastor or work at a church at all. Follow Jesus as a filmmaker, as a full-time parent, as a barista, as a student, as an insurance salesman or saleswoman, whatever it is. But it means that following Jesus is the focal point of your life. And you are invited by Jesus himself into this kind of life. Notice just a few things before we open it up for prayer. First off, notice that the invitation of Jesus, again, this is very simple. This whole message is very simple, but yet very profound at another level. The invitation of Jesus is to become an apprentice, not a Christian. Okay, and let me parse out what I mean by that. Whoever wants to be my disciple or my apprentice, come, take up your cross, follow me. That was, that's the quote verbatim line of Jesus. Did you know that the word Christian is used, anybody know how many times it's used in the New Testament? Not zero, but close. Three. Darren, you don't count. Come on, you work here, right? Three. It's used three times in the New Testament. Guess what? It's never actually used by followers of Jesus. It's used by outsiders to the church, and it's basically an insult. Oh, you, you Christian, you little Christ. It's basically like a, almost like a racial slur from people outside of the church that eventually was picked up by the church. Um, My point is, Christian isn't really a Jesus word or a New Testament word, even though it's the dominant language that's used in America for somebody who's a believer in Jesus or whatever. Do you know how many times the word disciple or apprentice is used in the New Testament? 
not 500. You just, you just, you just made, ah, you just ruined my whole point, right? <laughs> 268, which would have sounded like a lot if you had not said 500. I'm so, I'm so sorry, but thank you. I love the participation. That's great. Um, now, think about it. What's the difference between a Christian and a disciple? And just show me a little grace here, because at this point, we're into semantics, all right? Um, for most people in the U.S., and you, this might not be how you think of it, so let me just give you my read on not only my city, but I think even more our country. For most people in the U.S., all that the word Christian means is that you believe in the basic tenets of a religion that we call Christianity, that has grown up around Jesus and his teachings. Again, Christianity is not a word used by Jesus or any of the writers of the New Testament. doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's suspect. So it means you believe in the basic tenets of Christianity. You go to church, or they used to kind of mean that, on some sort of a semi-regular basis, which might mean like every Easter. And you're a semi-moral person, by however we now define morality. So being a Christian, now you might not mean that when you say I'm a Christian, but more and more, that's what people mean when they say, oh, I'm a Christian, or we're a Christian nation, or so-and-so is a Christian. But being a Christian, by that definition, is more about Jesus following you than you following Jesus. Meaning it's more about Jesus following you around to like bless you and help you out when like you're late for an appointment and you're in traffic and help Jesus or whatever. It's you know what the sociologist Christian Smith defined as moralistic therapeutic deism. Basically did this massive study of millennial faith and said what most millennials mean when they say I'm a Christian is not anything to do with the way of Jesus or discipleship to Jesus. It's what he called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic, I'm a semi-moral person. Therapeutic, it's about therapy and it's about me. It's about me feeling good about myself and my situation. Deism, there's a God, he's not really involved in my life unless if I need something, then he is. Right? He, and he basically said, when most people say Christian, what they mean is moralistic, therapeutic, deist. So it's more about, you, about Jesus following you than you following Jesus. And this is a huge problem in the U.S., for sure, in our country, less so in a, in a, in a city like Long Beach, or definitely where I'm at, which is a very post-Christian city. But in a recent Gallup poll, 76% of Americans claim to be Christian. So just think about like the morning news right now. Think about the socio-political, whatever, whether you're on the right or the left, or you're Anabaptist like me and you don't really care. Um, like, wherever you're at, just think about our nation right now and think, does it, does it seem to you like 76% of America is an apprentice of Jesus? It, it doesn't seem that way to me. And I have a lot of grace, so I make mistakes all the time, but it just doesn't quite strike me that way. Interesting, a number of independent studies have been done by nonprofits to, to take a run at some kind of a measurement of how many people in America are an apprentice or a disciple of Jesus. And it's a bit hard to measure, but they measure things like how often do you read the Bible, pray, go to church, your moral life, your theological kind of you know, belief system. And every single one has come in right at around 8%. So 76% check the box Christian. It's more like, as best we can tell, across our nation, be way lower in a Long Beach or in LA or Portland, way lower. But across our nation, more like 8% follow Jesus. Here's my point. In the West, we have created a cultural milieu where you can be a Christian but not an apprentice of Jesus. That idea is alien to Jesus and the writers of the New Testament. Did you pick up, especially in Mark chapter 8, and it's not here, it's all through all four Gospels, you have two groups of people. You have the crowds and the disciples. And when you read the disciples, don't just think of the 12. Those are the apostles. Jesus actually had more than 12 disciples. He had female disciples, which was unheard of at the time. That was like crazy subversive on the edge. So we had 
We don't know how many disciples, at least 120, if not far more than that, that were up in Galilee. So who knows, maybe a thousand or two. We don't know how many disciples he had, but he had a lot more than just the 12 apostles. So there are these two crowds of people. There's the disciples and there's the crowds. Now, this is a literary device that's used not only by Mark, but by all four gospel writers. And it's used not for you and I to judge who's in and who's out who's a, quote, Christian, who's a disciple, who's in the crowd. Not, it's not to judge anybody. It's for you and I to read this story and think, okay, wait a minute. Because the whole point when you're reading a story is to identify with a character in the story, right? To slip your mind and imagination into that scenario. And, and the whole point is to get you to ask the question, which category do I fit in? Am I, in the, am I just a face in the crowd? And, and I don't even know what that means. Where does that mean I stand with God and faith and heaven and hell and all of that? Or... Am I an apprentice of Jesus? And it's to get you to ask yourself that question. And this is a question that I think millennia later is just as piercing now than ever before. The great need of our day and age is for men and women who call themselves Christians to become apprentices of Jesus. Can you imagine if 76% of America started to order their entire life around three goals, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did. It would tweak our nation just a scotch, just a little bit. My point is that Jesus is not looking for converts to Christianity. He is looking for apprentices to the kingdom of God. Secondly, the invitation is to a life of practicing the way of Jesus in community. And I just want to set, do you want me to set this part up, the practice thing, or just end? I'm cool with whatever. Do it? Okay. Um, so the language of the way is used by Jesus and all four gospel writers, all through the New Testament. In fact, long before the church was called the church, it was called the way. Long before Christians were called Christians, they were actually called followers of the way. In Greek, it's this word hodos, and it literally means um, a, a way is a road or a path, or it can mean a journey that you go on. And over time, it became a word picture for a way of life, for a set of behaviors that make for life to the full. And hidden in plain sight in this word picture, all through the Gospel of Mark, all through the New Testament, is an idea that most of us have lost sight of in the Western kind of post-Reformation church, and that is that the way of Jesus is just that. It is a way of life. It's not just a set of ideas that you believe in your head, what we call Bible and theology. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts, um, or what we call morality. It is both of those things, but it's, it's more than that, not less than that. It is also a way of life. But so often in the American church, and I'll say this to criticize any, this is the church tradition I grew up in, a ton is said about what to believe, and a ton is said about what to do or not to, and very little is said about lifestyle. And let me tell you, lifestyle is where the money is at. Because if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what the spiritual disciplines are. There are the way that you follow Jesus, the way that you live the way Jesus lived. You organize your life the way Jesus organized his life, and in doing so, you tap into what he called life to the full. Now, the thing is, if you live in a city, if you have an iPhone, if you're just breathing in 2017, this takes practice, right? And we forget this. We forget that the Sermon on the Mount... Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this stunning vision of a whole new way to be human that so many people read, and the bar is set. It's actually quite down to earth, but people point out that the bar is set high, and it is. Like, but it's also very honest. It, it assumes that you struggle with lust 
and violence and bitterness and you want to divorce your spouse or you already have and you want more money than you need and have and you want to judge other people and look down your... So it assumes all sorts of things about a messy human condition, but still the bar is set pretty high, right? Whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. That's like... I don't think Game of Thrones quite makes it to there, right? Like, the bar is set pretty high to the point that a lot of people just write it off and say it can't be done, which is not actually true, but a lot of people read it and think. What we miss is that Jesus begins and he ends the Sermon on the Mount with this idea of practice, it's where this language of practicing the way comes from, Jesus himself. So at the beginning, next slide, Jesus says this, therefore anyone who sets aside, this is right before his first command, right before as you've heard it said, but I say to you, sets aside one of the least of these commands, what he's about to get into, and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever, what's the word? Practices and teaches these commands, this way of life that he's about to go on and teach in just a minute, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So that's the beginning. That's like the preface. Then, last paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the ending. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, what he just said, and puts them into what? is practice, is like a wise man or a woman who built his or her house on the rock. Rain came down, streams rose, Sunday school was awesome, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. By the way, that line is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Talk about a haunting way to end a sermon. No, no pep talk, no inspiration, no hash. Can you imagine, like, I get done, I'm like, all right, so everything I just said, if you go put it into practice, you'll do really well. You'll build the house of your life, it's a metaphor for your life, on the rock, and you'll thrive no matter what comes against you. If you hear what I just said, and you don't put it into practice, your whole life will fall apart, and it will fall with a great crash. <laughs> so that's the end. Like, that's the end of the stuff. Can you imagine you're sitting there? And you're like, where's the pep talk, Jesus? There's not even a, like, come forward for prayer. It's just like he's out the back door or something, you know? My, my point is, Jesus is pretty hardcore here. This way of life, this vision of apprenticeship to Jesus and all that is possible, it's going to take a life of practice in community. Yet very few of us think this way about following Jesus, right? Think about how you do anything hard. So let's just, let's, by way of metaphor, the best metaphor I know is that of athletics, which is what's used by Paul all through the New Testament. So let's say you're here this morning and you're out of shape and you're overweight and you have asthma and whatever. And for some reason, in something, there's a prophetic word over your life about you winning a marathon and you decide, whatever, to go run a marathon, how do you run a marathon? Do you wake up tomorrow morning and run 26.2 miles? No. What would, hap what would happen if you tried, and if you tried really hard to run 26.2 miles right, tomorrow morning? As you, asthma attack. What else? Ambulance. Yeah, the odds are that you would die. You'd, I mean, you'd make it to mile, depending on how bad your asthma is, how unhealthy you are. You'd make it to mile, I don't know, 2, 3, 10 maybe, and then you'd die. Now, maybe if you had Darren there to, like, jog next to you and pray and prophesy, maybe you'd make it to mile 12, and then you'd die. But at some point, you'd still collapse on the side of the road, leaking lung fluid, all right? And it would be really easy to think it can't be done. Now, that's not true. A marathon can be any one of you, pretty much, in the room could run a marathon. 
It's that it can't be done by you yet the way you are. So how do you, how do you run a marathon? Well, not by trying really hard, by training really hard, by practice. You get up tomorrow morning, you run one mile, and then you take a day off. And then on Wednesday, you run two. If you've ever, how many of you have run a marathon or a half marathon or something like that? Yeah, it's pretty simple how you train for it. Basically, once a week, you add a mile on to your long run. And so the first week, it's like a two-mile run. And then the third week, it's three, and then four, and then usually you take a week off, and then four, and then five, and then six, and then a week off, and then six, and then seven, and then eight. And over a very long period of time, six months go by, a year goes by, all of a sudden now, your long run, you're running 18 miles, 19 miles, 20 miles, 22 miles. And through a, over a long period of time, through not trying really hard, but training really hard, through practice, you become the kind of person for whom running 26.2 miles is not only possible, it is well within your capacity as a human being. It's hard, but you can do it. The problem is pretty much none of us approach our apprenticeship to Jesus this way. So we hear Jesus say, don't lust or do not worry, Matthew chapter 6. How are you doing with that one? (laughs) And so we go out, we're here teaching on worry or whatever, and we go out and we're inspired. We have information and inspiration and we think that's enough. And we go out and we're like, okay, I'm going to try really hard this week to not worry. We like make it to our car and get a text from our boss and we're racked by anxiety, (laughs) right? Or you make it to Wednesday morning staff meeting and then it's all over, you know? And it's easy to think it can't be done. No, it can. It just can't be done yet. You're unhealthy and obese and have asthma. But it can be done. But it's going to take not a week or two or three. It's going to take a lifetime of practice in community. By practice, I mean the practices of Jesus. Like that's what the spiritual disciplines are. The spiritual disciplines are an apprenticeship to Jesus, what your morning exercise routine is to your health. They are the way that you train It's not about trying really hard. It's not about go out this week and just try really hard to not worry or not lust or be with Jesus. It's not about trying. It's about training really hard. It is about something you do. But it's this grace thing where there's grace of the Holy Spirit in you to practice the disciplines, to read your Bible, to pray, to go on a walk before you go to sleep at night, to take a Sabbath, an entire day out of your week just to rest and worship, to come to church on Sunday and sing and sit through a teaching that is way too long. Like this, that's, you, just, you just do this. You present yourself before God. And over time, you start to grow and mature and you get stronger and you get stronger and you get stronger. How? By practicing the way, the lifestyle of Jesus of Nazareth in community, not by yourself. You can't follow Jesus alone. All the introverts like me hate that, but it's true. You have to follow Jesus with other people, your house church, your community, your best friends. We do this together. Finally, this invitation is open to anybody. Did you notice that Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple? Now that you understand what discipleship is, do you realize the gravity of what he's saying? This is, this is like a rock star professor from Harvard saying, if anybody wants a full ride scholarship to Harvard, just like shoot me an email but I have a, like a 2.9. That's no problem, but I didn't graduate from high school. That's okay. Anybody. Right? How many of you would shoot him an email and be like, wow, I'd like, uh, sign me up. I'm in. This is why Peter and James and John, they dropped everything and left the boat. Matthew, the tax collector, literally walked out of the booth. You misread that story if you read it and you think it's about their virtue. What an amazing person who would give up everything. If you were working at like 
some really lousy job for minimum wage, you dropped out of high school at you know, 14 or whatever, and a rock star professor said, how, how many of you would like to get your PhD for free and go on to become a da-da-da famous How many of you would drop, walk out of your work right there and go, like this is an incredible opportunity. And it is open to anybody, wherever you're at on the socioeconomic spectrum, rich, poor, male, female, young, old, 12 years old in the front row, 90-something years, I've, like, doesn't matter. It's open to all of you are invited to follow Jesus, to be with him, to become like him, to become the kind of person who one day does the kinds of things that he does. All of you are invited. And this is the journey that you have been on as a church and you will continue to go on. And my invitation to you is that you say yes to Jesus. Not just listen to a sermon, take a few notes and go back to life. I was reading a social scientist yesterday. He said there are four levels of change and each one gets harder. Easiest level of change is to change your mind. Next easiest level is to change your attitude, how you, how you feel. Then the really hard one is to change your behavior. And then the hardest one of all is to change the behavior of a, the mind, attitude, and behavior of a group of people. Really easy to hear a sermon and be like, oh yeah, I now understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's even really easy to change how you feel about that, to have an emotional experience right now. Wow, I'm really moved. It's a whole other thing. The question is, will you actually change how you live? And by you, I mean how you as a church live. Will you as a church practice the way of Jesus together? One of the most haunting teachings of Jesus to me is the parable of the sower. You have, you know that story? I don't have time to retell it for you. I'm way over my time, but... Four soils, only one of them takes the seed to root. Now, I don't think Jesus is teaching a statistical breakdown of a local church. But let's just set that aside for a minute. 75% of the people in the parable don't have any lasting fruit at all. Only 25% have any fruit, and only a third of the 25% bear fruit to 100 fold. I'm really bad at math. What is that, eight point something? Clearly not my calling in life. Now, again, I don't think this is a statistical breakdown of, you know, what to expect for the garden church. But I know for one, I want to be in that 8%. I want all that Jesus has for me. I want all that he has for you. So will you just hear a teaching, not just this one, but the sermon series you're about to start, and will you just change your mind or even change your attitude? Or will you actually let it sink into your behavior, your way of life, your way to be human, and not just as an individual, but as a community. This is the question, the haunting question, and it's the invitation of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.